Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd. March is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate us. As women, we put our heart and soul into everything we do. Release the Pressure is here to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. I'm inviting you to help us get 100,000 Black women to learn more about their heart health. Go to www.releasethepressure.org and take the pledge to prioritize your heart health. That's www.releasethepressure.org. You are valuable. Learn more about your heart health today. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results. Made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at Walgreens. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Take it from me, being a woman online isn't always fun. Sometimes it get trolls, stalkers, and harassers. That's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter nogirls at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash nogirls and we'll see you on the internet. There Are No Girls on the Internet is a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. This week marks Indigenous Peoples Day, a day to honor and commemorate Native people and an opportunity to re-examine having a national holiday celebrating Christopher Columbus, a murderer. It's catching on, with seven states officially celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day and more commemorating the day via proclamations. And it's really representative of how a shift in cultural attitudes can lead to meaningful widespread cultural shift. Which brings me to my city's football team name. For as long as I can remember, Washington, D.C.'s professional football team has been a slur. And Native activists have been trying to do something about it for years. Dan Snyder the owner of Washington, D.C.'s professional football team, announced the team would be changing their name earlier this summer. But don't give Snyder too much credit for doing the right thing. It was only after pressure from corporate and political interests, fanned by years of work by activists, that he did anything at all. And we can't talk about the name change without also talking about those Native activists, their brilliance, their labor, and their ability to imagine that things could be different. In 2014, Jacqueline Keeler created the Not Your Mascot movement on social media to take action against what she calls Native mascotry in sports and all Indigenous cultural misappropriations. My name is Jacqueline Keeler, and I am a journalist based out of Portland, Oregon. So what was your upbringing like? 
Um, well, I, I am Native American, and both of my parents are uh, enrolled in different tribes. Uh, my father is Yankton Sioux um, from South Dakota, and my mother is Navajo from Arizona. And, uh, and they actually met in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, through relocation. And uh, Cleveland, Ohio was a relocation center. Um, and there were a number of these around the country, and they were established starting in the 1950s and going into the 1970s. Uh, to, there was a Congress passed a bill called Termination, which was to terminate tribes politically and then to relocate the population to these relocation centers. It sounds quite Orwellian, <laughs> but, uh, but they did create a lot of activism. I mean, concentrating uh, the relocation program was for young people between the ages of 18 and 30. And it basically created these large populations of native young people and they got busy you know, organizing. And uh, uh, I know in Cleveland, that's where the whole fight against Chief Wahoo started. And, and also the fight with about Columbus Day as well. And so, uh, so that's the community I was born into, um, an urban uh, young native community that was um, really starting to organize and address issues and was also multi-tribal. So what kind of impact did that have on you? When you're part of a family that's an outsider family that has a different history and a different perspective to accepted history, you're constantly as a child being challenged and, and, and constantly being fed and taught a critique of, of society. And I think I describe how um, I did a piece about Thanksgiving a number of years back and, and uh, about how my grandma, my mother, before she even sent me to kindergarten, was, you know, sat down and told me, you know, you're, you're going to hear things about Indian people that aren't true. You know your own family. You know who they are. And, you know, and I mean, like things that you're going to hear that Indians are drunks and losers and all this stuff. But, you know, you know, your, your aunts and uncles have gone to college. You know that these things are not true. You know that, uh, you know, it's sort of you're, you, you're prepped before you go. And then you're also told, I was told at that age, <laughs> at five, uh, the history of the taking of the land. And it's, it's sort of, I described it in one of the pieces I wrote, it sort of it takes the wind out of you as even as a five-year-old. Until it puts you immediately um, sort of at odds with America because you feel enraged even as a small child, you know, uh, and you feel like you want to correct that wrong. And, and so I think being raised in a Native family really articulates that for you. Yeah, that kind of foundational grounding of this is who you are, this is who you come from, this is this is our culture. You don't have to, you might hear things that you that aren't true, but you still have that grounding. I feel like family can really be the thing that gives you that. And also this is who they are, Jamie. This is who they really are. Right. You know? And I think that's uh that makes you um you know that outsider perspective makes you cautious, makes you skeptical. Uh you know, it makes even as a five year old, it makes you go, huh, okay. My mom, uh, when I was like in first grade, she was she was like, "Don't sing Land of the Pilgrims' Pride, sing Land of the Indians' Pride." <laughs> yeah, that's something. You know, like when you're a little kid, you're going, you know, to your music class, and and you have to suddenly sing something different than what all the other kids are singing, and you know you have to because your mom told you to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, and it's like so. I sang it really softly, but I wasn't going to, you know, disobey my mother on that line. So I was just like, oh. but you know, it was, it was, it's you know, it's. It is one thing to have these internal family discussions, and it's another thing to act um, on them when you're the minority, when you're like the only Indian kid in your school, 
and um, and and you're learning and being taught things. You're you're in a sense you almost feel like even as a small child you're being sent in there as a spy, like as a as someone who is going to collect information who is existing in this other place and and coming back and and someday you and your family are going to do something with all that information. <laughs> Jacqueline went to college at Dartmouth in New Hampshire which according to its charter, was originally started as a school to educate Native students in the ways of English life. Today, the school's unofficial mascot may be Keggy the Keg, but back when she was going there, they were called the Indians. So when was the first time the issue of mascots really hit home for you? So it wasn't until I went to college that the mascot issue really came on my radar. And that was, I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And we actually, uh, the Native students who were incoming freshmen, were uh, freshman week, uh, were given like extra classes on meeting with uh, other Native alumni, older alumni, and and basically given the story about the Indian mascot. Dartmouth used to be the Dartmouth Indians, and they had this, uh, you know, a warrior mascot, more of a um, sort of a Eastern Woodlands uh, looking mascot. And uh, and Dartmouth was originally founded as as an Indian school, right? And actually my husband's ancestor, uh, Chief Joseph Brandt and his other grandfather, William Johnson, they both were uh, young Mohawk boys who attended uh, Dartmouth before the Revolutionary War. And it was actually, Dartmouth is located in New Hampshire because the founder, uh, Eliezer Wheelock, wanted to place it in a place where it would be accessible to the Iroquois Confederacy in upstate New York, where they could come and and bring their children to be um, educated. And he wasn't interested in the Indians in Connecticut, who who actually, one of his students was, uh, Sam Samakam, was a minister, and he was the one who raised the... uh, um, I think about 2,000 pounds of silver to start the college. He went on a speaking tour in Scotland, and uh, but he didn't want to. He didn't want, his white mentor did not want to help the Indians in Connecticut because he thought they were not real Indians enough for him. That they were becoming too, you know, Christian. To you know, he wanted to go for the more sexy, uh, wild, you know, and powerful Iroquois Confederacy. <laughs> so he, that's why Dartmouth is even in New Hampshire. Back when Jacqueline was in college, the issue kind of came down to Native students feeling really uncomfortable by the mascot and white students just really not getting it. One of the things they did with the support of the alumni was to basically uh, drive up in a truck uh, freshman week and just throw out free T-shirts, Dharma T-shirts with the Dharma Indian on them to the freshman class. And my roommate wore hers. She was a white uh, a white uh, woman from uh, Massachusetts, uh, Irish American, and it was that was when I first realized how hard this issue was. Like to me, it was obvious it was wrong, you know. Right. <laughs> and and then she with her actually uh, um, the uh, I, just by circumstance, two Navajo students were on either side of our our our, our shared dorm room. They had singles, uh, and and so uh, so she was surrounded by basically three Navajos. And we were all trying to tell her, like, you know, this is not great. And she just literally could not comprehend. Like, it was impossible for her to comprehend the issue. And I was all like, and she says, well, it's just a free Dharma t-shirt. That's all, you know, and you know how expensive they are, you know, (laughs) and stuff. And I'm all like, oh, God, you know, this is like nothing I've encountered before. Like the level, their inability to comprehend the issue was was profound, you know. And uh, and it's at moments like that where you realize 
your own experiences and where you're coming from is so different, you know, so different. And uh, you just never realized until that moment. Okay, so flash forward to 2013. How did the not your mascot hashtag come to be? Yeah, so uh, eradicating offensive native masketry, which uh, we say uh, we, we created the hashtag not your mascot and trended it in 2014 during the Super Bowl. And uh, it was started by native parents uh, from across the country. And uh, we met online on Twitter, mostly. <laughs> and, uh, and we found it hard to sort of organize via Twitter. So we set up a Facebook group. And so uh, EONM, you can see, is still a Facebook group. It's, it's, a pri- it's sort of a private Facebook group because we found that we kept getting um, sort of trolled by uh, ma- white mascot supporters. So we had to make it private. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, we organized through that and we started creating, um, doing what we call Twitter storms. <laughs> this was in the fall of 2013. And we are primarily using the hashtag change the mascot, right? Or change the name. And um, suddenly, right, we we, uh, we found that, uh, that our, the mascot had been sort of, I don't know, it was being used, and this sounds really strange, but it was being used by... Uh, uh, by Twitter accounts selling land, real estate in India, in the country of India. What? Yeah. So all our tweets were getting buried by these thousands of tweets advertising real estate in India. Yeah, and we really were very suspicious. We thought it was, um, we thought it was Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington NFL team. Ugh. I mean, I wouldn't put yeah, it hiring all you know these sorts of troll farms and stuff. Pretty early, you know, usage of it. I think at that time they were still being called. Um, what was it? Uh, I can't remember. But yeah, so uh, so we were very suspicious. So we re- we realized we were going into uh, the Super Bowl without a hashtag, right? Without a usable one, and uh, and so I mean, even with all of us like putting together the organizing the native community, both in the United States and Canada to really tweet our hearts out to try to get this notice, uh, to this issue. Uh, you know, it really wasn't, we were still getting buried. Right. And so, um, so we've thought about it and, uh, she was my friend, she's Cherokee. Uh, um, she came up with, uh, uh <laughs> she came up with the uh, name, um, not the hat, not your mascot. Right. Which has been used before. I think you can find signs, people using that, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. But we uh, we were the first ones to really create a hashtag. <laughs> and we checked. We did the whole, like, we, yeah. Because people later tried to claim, you know, the kind of infighting that happens when there's a successful hashtag, you know. And uh, so we had to do the research. But we uh, we kept it secret. And so we uh, we just felt like we liked it. I, I like it better than change the name, change the mascot, because what appealed to me was that it was a taking back, right? And we are taking this back and we are taking back who we are and owning it, right? And, uh, and so uh, we kept it pretty secret. We uh, basically, uh, we, we all looked at who our most high profile Twitter followers were at that time. I mean, for some reason, Chuck D was following me. <laughs> and so we just, we made a list of them all, you know, and, and we basically contacted them uh, personally and we told them that we were going to be launching this hashtag and uh, we were going to do a test run Saturday before uh, the, the night before um, uh, the Super Bowl. And would they help us and share it with their followers? And I think in 2000, 
for you know 2004 January 2014 I think Twitter was a more innocent place in some ways <laughs> it is now several years later and then we did it again on Sunday and and so that was how we started that and it was really just a necessity that we created that hashtag but I mean, I've been really happy with how it's grown and been used and I can imagine social media was probably pretty helpful for having this all come together. We were able to utilize Native people on the ground. And, and the amazing thing about social media was that it really it allowed us to organize at a, at a level that we had not been able to do before. Uh, the Native community is very dispersed. Uh, most of the majority of the Native people live off the reservation and they are like live as minorities amongst minorities. Like sometimes the only, like me, the only native kid in your school type of thing. So we live quite isolated from each other. And, uh, and so social media was a great and amazing uh, boon to helping us organize more effectively and, and more rapidly. And, uh, and so when Dad Snyder started that uh, foundation, the original Americans Foundation, and I uh, was going around giving money to tribes to try to buy support for his mascot. He was flying all over the country in his private plane, and he was doing it very secretively. And so we, uh, because we were connected with Native people across the country, we were able to get people sending us tips and sending us all kinds of things. And, uh, and we actually used that uh, to, uh, you know, I had some contacts in the media and, um, and we used that to put stories out. Uh, about what he was doing. And we basically made him the story. I think if you watch the 2014, he made all these missteps. And was and the issue around his mascot started to become a, more of a referendum on him personally. Forbes' Monty Burke noted that the name change issue was made much worse by the fact that people just really did not like Dan Snyder. The original America's Foundation, Snyder's paid PR effort to stop conversations about the name change, was pretty embarrassing. He famously refused to meet with Native activists about the name change. And he told USA Today, we'll never change the name. It's that simple. Never. You can use all caps. But after the protests surrounding the deaths of unarmed Black people this summer, Dan Snyder pretty much could not ignore the fact that the climate was changing. And for the first time, the team faced significant financial pressure in addition to protests from activists. A group of investors asked major sponsors like Pepsi and FedEx to pressure him to change the name. Then FedEx Field, the stadium right outside of D.C. in Maryland, where the Washington football team plays, joined the chorus too. Nike pulled Washington football team swag from their website. And in July, the team finally announced they'd be reviewing the name. So how does it feel to know that they're finally dropping this slur from this team name? You know, does it feel like a win for your community? How are you feeling about it? You know, I didn't feel like we had won. I felt like we had we had not won the issue. Once again, the lack of understanding, lack of ability. I felt like we did not actually win the issue. The issue was tabled, right? And what, what won the issue was Black Lives Matter, and that's what I write about, uh, basically. And, and you know, this is this has been true before. I would say I remember asking uh, my uncle Vine Deloria Jr. He's a well-known um, Native uh, historian. Uh, he wrote "Custer Died for Your Sins" and "God Is Red." And, um, and I remember asking, I was like, what started the Red Power Movement, Jimmy, in the 70s? And he was like, he looked at me like I was like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, well, it was a civil rights movement. Like, <laughs> how can you not know this? You know, the, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, the Black Power Movement, you know, spawned the Red Power Movement, you know. And, and, and I think that's, you know, what my mother always told me was like, I, the way she, it sounds kind of weird, but the way she described it was like that the Black community were like our, our, um, our older brothers. I mean, that they, 
that they um, helped us and looked out for us and that they were more familiar and more knowledgeable about white society and how to maneuver in it. And, and so they were often really helpful. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, I love that. Yeah, that was her way of understanding it. With the Not Your Mascot thing, I really feel like it was Black Lives Matter and, um, you know, of course, you know, the, the price paid by the black community and, you know, folks like Breonna Taylor and, and, uh, and George Floyd, all of those things that made it possible. I mean, it made, created an atmosphere that made this no longer acceptable, you know, starting with the Confederate statues and then questioning other folks. And suddenly it made the arguments we are making made them undeniable. And, and that's what forced mm-hmm. his hand. Let's take a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd. March is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate us. As women, we put our heart and soul into everything we do. Release the Pressure is here to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. The RTP Heart Health Squad will support you in protecting your mental health and overall well-being. I'm inviting you to help us get 100,000 Black women to learn more about their heart health. Go to www.releasethepressure.org and take the pledge to prioritize your heart health. That's www.releasethepressure.org. You are valuable. Learn more about your heart health today. As we celebrate International Women's Day and all the strides we've made, let's also take a moment to reflect on something important, the future of our self-care. You see, for too long, we've compromised on things that matter most, us, but not anymore. New Conair Bomb is helping us embrace a new era of self-care and self-love. Bomb represents a groundbreaking line of hair removal tools specifically designed for women. From the smoothest shave to the most precise trim, Conair Bomb is all about making you feel empowered, confident, and unapologetically you. Whether it's creating a hype playlist, throwing yourself into a hobby, or scheduling some me time, self-care is so important. With Conair Girl Bomb's ultimate Girl Bomb grip and professional grade blades, we're reclaiming our self-care journey with precision and power. The kind we used to only get from men's tools. So head to Walgreens today and treat yourself to a little Conair Girl Bomb magic. Because when you look good, you feel good. And there's nothing more empowering than that. Okay, so I love the internet, but if you listen to this podcast, I probably don't need to tell you that it can come with a lot of very serious privacy concerns. The sad truth is being a traditionally marginalized person online or being an activist or even just somebody who sticks up for what you believe in means having to worry about what kind of information is online out there about us. It's something I think about a lot. And that's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter nogirls at checkout, J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash nogirls, and we'll see you on the internet. Like Donna and Tom from the Pawnee Parks Department, I love to treat myself, mimosas, massages, fine leather goods, all of it. And treating myself does not end when it comes to taking care of my health and body. So if you treat yourself to the top options with everything in life like I do, why settle when finding a doctor? It is your health after all. Enter ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book tens of thousands of top-tier doctors, all with verified patient reviews. 
So don't settle. Go for the best and find the right doctor for you. With ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed credible doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. Listen, I have been using ZocDoc for years, even before they asked me to make this ad, and you should too. Go to ZocDoc.com slash NoGirls and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash NoGirls. ZocDoc.com slash NoGirls. And we're back. Our country has a fascination with pretending to be Native and appropriating Native culture without really giving it much thought. And even worse, when Native culture is presumed to be up for the taking, some will take it a step further and just pretend to be Native themselves. This summer, science researcher Beth Ann McLaughlin admitted to being behind the Twitter account of a bisexual Hopi professor who didn't really exist. Longtime listeners of Tangoti might remember that we mentioned McLaughlin briefly in the episode featuring Ottawa Mboya and MIT. As the recipient of MIT's Disobedience Award, McLaughlin used this native persona for years, building up legit influence on social media. And in 2015, Andrea Smith, a prominent academic at the University of California in Riverside, was accused of misrepresenting herself as Cherokee. And all of this happens while actual Native women and their work and contributions go overlooked. I did a whole series of podcasts uh, on, uh, at, at, at Pollination Magazine. Uh, on the, our, you can see them on our Facebook page uh, that, uh, that goes through the pretendian issue. And pretend is, I guess, I don't know if I invented this term, but it's, uh, I do have to explain it. But pretend Indian. Pretendian. I think my parents' generation called them Wanabis, the Wanabi tribe, the wannabe tribe. And uh, so uh, I just got that. Yeah. And uh, and uh, so it's um, but yeah, I think uh, it's a real issue. I mean, of course, a lot of people know about the issue of Cherokees, what they go through with with fraud. Uh, I think the Cherokee Nation at one point tried to count the number of fake Cherokee tribes, and they got to over four hundred, right? And uh, so it's quite extensive. Uh, it's astounding. I, I would have to say, and this is my theory, and I, I go into this in my, I did the podcast on structural fixes to pretendianism because there are so many pretendians. It's like whack-a-mole. I would say as high as one in three people in some official capacity, whether as heads of Native American studies departments or, you know, uh, you know artists or, or you know, uh, writers, authors are, are are frauds. They're fake Indians. It's it's really that high, you know. It's it's. I mean, I as a journalist, I really kept stumbling upon this. You know, I'd be interviewing someone, and then uh, and then later find out that they were a fake. You know, what's that like for you? It's it makes our it makes our identity or our reality like a hall of mirrors. You know, it's so. I mean, it's it's everything: gaslighting, you know, colonialism, taking, all of that stuff, all white privilege, you know, all rolled up into one, right? 
And uh, so it's it's very frustrating. And of course, we have, uh, you know, uh, folks who are, um, you know, who are people of color, but they are, they choose, they would prefer to be native. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. we have a lot, I think um, Adam Beach recently, he's a, a native actor, First Nations actor from Canada. He's been a lot of uh, Hollywood roles. Uh, you know, he recently called out an actress who is uh, Chinese and white. In addition to actors pretending to be native, non-native writers and directors try to tell native stories on TV. And it just comes off as really inauthentic. When you see when someone is obviously a fraud, you know, and uh, <laughs> or way, the way it's being presented is, is kind of like, oh, uh, that's not how we... It's like very stereotypical. You know, you hear the flute music. Ooh, you know, it's all this kind of stuff. It's super annoying. And we really need Navajo show. We need Native American showrunners and writers who are in control of the of everything. You know, bringing uh, actors or directors in at the last minute when everything is said and done uh, is, is not enough of a fix. It does speak to this larger issue of people who pretend to be Native, which is so common that it's almost a cliche at this point. I cover several cases of pretendianism and I get contacted almost every day by native people. And what really clued me into it was when I was, I would call like a native academic, uh, you know, for a quote or a comment on a story completely unrelated to uh, ethnic fraud. And, uh, and they would, after we'd have the, have the, you know, interview, they'd be like, you know, by the way, I was wondering if you could cover this story. We're having a problem. My university is hiring a, a pretendian, uh, you know, someone who has no native ancestry at all, who just claims to be native. And and, and he's going to be my boss. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, once they become your boss or, you know, your, your, your thesis advisor, you know, what can you do? They're, they, they're, you're basically being, you're basically being babysat by a white fraudster over what you can say about native issues. And it's like, you, you can't really, like, well, yeah, what can you do? It's like, you can't really be like, listen, I know you're a fraud. Like, you have so few, you probably have so few avenues to, to sort it out. Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, in 2015, uh, it really came out in the Native community that, um, that this woman named Andrea Smith, who is a Native American studies professor at the University of California, Riverside, right? I think she runs the department there. She was she was probably the most famous Native woman at the time uh, in, in the early aughts for a book she wrote called Conquest, which was all about, you know, colonization and uh, the uh, um, violence against uh, Indigenous women. And uh, it turned out she was a complete fraud. She was not Cherokee at all. And, and a bunch of Cherokee scholars got together and wrote a group letter and published it in Indian Country Today and demanding that she stop. You know, and um, she hasn't. She's still doing it. So did she own up to it or was she just like, I am Cherokee. I don't care what y'all say. She sort of, you know, the thing is that they don't have to answer to us. They have to. The, the only people they answer to are white people who don't know anything. Right. Who, and who are afraid to enter the, the, the issue. Right. Because but they're taking advantage of genocide and yet they get their um, they build space through genocide. Right. And and so basically, you know, saying, well, you know, there's no paperwork because, you know, my ancestors hid out and everything. And and uh, and they, they have all these arguments. But, you know, she actually hired the leading the, the Cherokee Nation's official genealogist, uh, David Cornselk, to do her genealogy uh, in the 19 early 19 or I think in the 1990s. She she hired him to do her her mother's side. Couldn't find anything, any links to the Cherokee Nation at all, who, who are, by the way. Uh, one of the most documented people in the world, like Cherokee 
people always tell me that historians and genealogists tell me they're the, they're the most documented people, second only to royalty. So if you can't find a tie, there is none, basically. And I think the LA Times has done a really good series of articles, uh, uh, one in, uh, I guess, December of last year, uh, which uh, looked at fake tribes in California. Uh, that's another place, of course, uh, you know, with the uh, gold rush and everything, those tribes were decimated. The genocide was quite um, extensive. And now there's all these fake Chumash tribes popping up. And then also they did a study before that. Uh, uh, they did an article where they, uh, they, they, they found that there was fake Cherokee tribes had taken in over $350 million in federal set-asides. Even after they, it was revealed they were fake, they still were receiving that money. And that's so harmful. And it's, you know, it's uh, where there's money, people will do this. And so the issue of masketry, I see it is on the spectrum of pretendianism. It's all of a piece. When we turn already traditionally underrepresented people into mascots, it doesn't just end at the sports arena. Offensive representations of Native people rooted in harmful stereotypes are dehumanizing. And actual Native people are left to deal with the consequences. There was a study done by the Kellogg Foundation in uh, 2018, I think it came out. And uh, and what they found, they done a bunch of focus groups. Maybe it was started in 2017, 2018. And, uh, and they found that uh, the issue of masketry was very hard. Uh, I, I came up with the term masketry to sort of take it away from the mascot, which can be sort of prosaic and handsome, and to mask a tree, which, which describes all the things they do with that, right? All the red face and, and all the, you know, uh, wearing the Pocahontas outfits and, and the, uh, the, you know, the headdresses and, and, you know, debasing our culture, right, for their own enjoyment. Right. And uh, what they found was that only 30% uh, of, of people they had in these focus groups understood the issue of, of mascots. And uh, so and they and they but they found that with Standing Rock, uh, you know, they had also uh, that over 70 percent under, understood and agreed with the issue of sovereignty and, and the importance of Standing Rock. So you can see that Standing Rock was an issue that white people could understand. Right. And have compassion for. But mascots, they can't understand, you know, and uh, and also they found they uh, they found that whether uh, white uh, folks they were focus grouping uh, only um, thought that native people were 60% human, like that we were, what? yeah, that we weren't fully human, <laughs> like Jesus. 40% animalistic. And so all of these stereotypes feed into that. And uh, so, um, but my solution is actually, I think, I, I see this as a structural problem. And, uh, and uh, I actually think it has to do with the fuzziness of our political identity which is purposeful. It's a purposeful result of U.S. policy for, you know, hundreds of years. Uh, I often tell people, you know, if you don't speak your language or, you know, you can't enroll, it's probably not your, it's not your fault. It's, you know, th this is the result of, uh, of, of policy, official U.S. policy uh, by, you know, the most powerful country in the world, basically, and uh, which is to uh, make us disappear. And of course, it's political because it's tied to our claims to the land as nations, as pre-existing nations to the United States. And so it's these claims to the land that are the threat that we represent as a people. And so, <laughs> so I think that the, the solution is um, really strengthening our political reality. 
And uh, so we have tribes now that are recognized by the federal government. We have tribes that are not recognized. We have a lot of fake tribes, right? And uh, But what I suggest is actually creating a, a federal indigenous government uh, that could be counter to the U.S. government uh, and would represent a, you know, all the tribes and would then be the body that would recognize tribes that would allow them to join indigenous peoples and, uh, and not only the United States, but Canada and contiguous land areas as well. And, uh, and so I think that by doing that, we will be politically much more um, visible things, which makes us more and more real, more and more present in the, in the moment. When you are colonized, these are the things that go, you know, these are the things you can't protect your language, your children, you know, uh, your everything, your land base, all these things, because the, your borders are, are, what I see is our identity is incredibly fuzzy around the edges. It's very permeable. So it's very easy for them to take it, you know, for them to claim it, to take it. And, uh, and so this is, this is why I feel that a much more, a much stronger, strengthened political reality is the answer because once we are politically real then it's much harder for them to, to to work in these fuzzy spaces created by colonization part of creating a reality where native people are more politically real is also creating a world where people don't feel like native culture is just up for the taking as identities or as offensive mascots and it's not a tribute or a compliment to use someone else's culture in this way especially when actual native people are so often underfunded underrepresented and unsupported. And um, it's not complimentary. It's not, it's not even benign. It, it, it's aggressive, right? Especially when you see mm-hmm. the way that they attack actual Native people to hold their space, right? And uh, so like with this Andrea Smith, uh, you know, after she was really publicly revealed in the Native community in 2015, you know, just uh, a couple, in, I think 2018, all year long, I, her students kept messaging me and Native students, mostly Navajo women, and they were like, you know, we're sitting in this classroom, we can't say anything. We know she's a fake. You know, she tries to talk to us and buddy up to us, and we're just like, but we, I need her recommendation to get into this graduate program. Do you know what I mean? It's just, and then there's suddenly all these things that you can't talk about because you have to get the okay of the pretendian who's protecting their space. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's very corrosive, and uh, and it also it's a taking. I mean, we are uh, I think <laughs> the poorest community you know, group in the United States. We are uh, have the lowest income levels, uh, and to take uh, jobs from us uh, that could support a native family, and even folks because people send money home to the reservation, you know, you're, it's a big taking from really the most impoverished people in the in the country. White privilege means that uh, white people pretending to be us is is far more attractive to white people who are in dis- power decision making places to because uh, it, it feeds all their ideas about us. They know how to perform the identity in a way that appeals to white people. More after this quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd. March is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate us. As women, we put our heart and soul into everything we do. Release the Pressure is here to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. The RTP Heart Health Squad will support you in protecting your mental health and overall well-being. I'm inviting you to help us get 100,000 Black women to learn more about their heart health. 
Go to www.releasethepressure.org and take the pledge to prioritize your heart health. That's www.releasethepressure.org. You are valuable. Learn more about your heart health today. As we celebrate International Women's Day and all the strides we've made, let's also take a moment to reflect on something important, the future of our self-care. You see, for too long, we've compromised on things that matter most, us, but not anymore. New Conair Girl Bomb is helping us embrace a new era of self-care and self-love. Girl Bomb represents a groundbreaking line of hair removal tools specifically designed for women. From the smoothest shave to the most precise trim, Conair Girl Bomb is all about making you feel empowered, confident, and unapologetically you. Whether it's creating a hype playlist, throwing yourself into a hobby, or scheduling some me time, self-care is so important. With Conair Girl Bomb's Ultimate Girl Bomb Grip and professional grade blades, we're reclaiming our self care journey with precision and power, the kind we used to only get from men's tools. So head to Walgreens today and treat yourself to a little Conair Girl Bomb magic. Because when you look good, you feel good, and there's nothing more empowering than that. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B two B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B two B either. That's why if you're a B two B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over seventy million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B two B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes, yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be. To be, we'll even give you a one hundred dollar credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com/customer to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn.com/customer. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, debit card users, listen up! Discover has something especially for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can start earning cash back on everyday debit card purchases. You heard that right, cash back on debit purchases because cash back isn't just for credit cards. It's time you also get some love. Oh, and I should also mention this has no fees. Period. Finally, the game-changing checking account you deserve. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com/cashbackdebit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Let's get right back into it. So I live in D.C. where so many of us are embarrassed by the fact that this slur was associated with our city. But what do you say to people who are like, oh, it's just a mascot. What's the big deal? Or worse, say it's actually trying to honor your heritage. You know, what do you say to these people? I think that for white people, often they will bring up the, uh, the Viking mascot. And what I tell them is that it's not as pervasive. It's not the only way that white men are seen, which is true for native people, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I tell them like, imagine, imagine that you live in a world where the only time you see a white man is as a Viking and as a mascot. <laughs> and, uh, and so what would be the, what would you say the first time you meet a white man? You'd be like, where's your long boat? Where's your helmet with the horns on it? You know, because this is your assumption. Allison, you never saw a white man, you know, 
uh, you know, uh, running for president. You never saw a white man, you know, on TV anchoring the news. You never saw a white man saving the world in a Hollywood movie. You, know, you never saw a white family on TV just, you know, in a sitcom. You know, you never you walk into a bookstore and uh, maybe two of the books are written from the perspective of a, of a, of a contemporary white man. Jamie, out of the thousands of books, you know, uh, then, then, then it would be the same thing. <laughs> but see, they don't live in that world, you know, where they're marginalized to that extent. Uh, and so, so, <laughs> so it's, so, you know, you just, I, I try to put people in a different perspective of where they stand. Cause I think that, you know, uh, that's the only way they can grasp the issue. Well, the main thing is what it, how it impacts native youth. I think that's a very real measure. And, uh, the research done, particularly by a, um, a Tulalip tribal member, um, uh, she uh, she did a lot of research. Um, oh, what is her name? Um, Stephanie. Um, forgetting her name right now, but uh, but she uh, she did a lot of research on Stanford on the mascot issue. And what she was she uh, basically uh, tested native youth. Uh, she tested their uh, self esteem. Uh, their ability to imagine what they want to do and think whether they thought they could achieve it. There's a term for that. I can't remember right now, but um, Stephanie Freiberg, that's her name. And, uh, and she, uh, and then she, she exposed them to the mascot. Right. And what she found in this was that, that it, uh, it overwhelmingly reduced the self-esteem of native youth once they were exposed to a native mascot. And, and, and strikingly enough that the, the Native uh, youth who claimed to be okay with Native mascots, their self-esteem plummeted the most. Mm. And also what plummeted was their ability to imagine themselves being able to achieve their dreams. And it's this, it's this, I think, you know, the realization that you're not regarded as fully human by society, it makes you like less engaged. Do you mean unless and you, you no longer believe you can achieve certain things? Right. Wow. And, and Native youth are, by every measure, um, the most vulnerable. And, and the price of the American dream is, is paid, um, you know, by people of color and, and by Native youth. And to to engage in this uh, thing just for entertainment value is, is uh, and, and that that Native youth should have to pay the price is um, pretty horrific. In one of your pieces that I read about Not Your Mascot, you said that you and the other Native parents who were behind this campaign were really doing it because you wanted to leave a better life for your children. So my question is, what are your hopes for the next generation of Native little ones like your own? Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, my son wants to be a filmmaker. <laughs> and yeah, and, and you know, he's, he's actually not that interested in doing things about Native things. He just wants to, to write as a writer. He wants to just, you know, be a filmmaker and just make films without having to think too much about or having to... See, one of the things is I don't want us to have to perform our identity either. Do you know what I mean? I think a lot of times people will meet Native people and be like, well, you don't seem Indian enough to me right? Like a random white person. I mean, you know, you're not the kind of Indian I think an Indian should be. And uh, and so there's a sense that everyone's an authority on being Indian and they can tell an Indian when they see one, right? And um, and this notion that then it does, you know, impact Native people. They feel, you know, you'll see Native people who are, I think the seeking out of our culture is really important and 
and that it needs to be something that we, we have access to. But I think it needs to happen at a structural level. It needs to be sort of flow naturally, like our language acquisition. You know, when you're colonized, it's disrupted. But um, when you have political, strong political boundaries, then it grows. I think a lot of times us being able to perform our culture is treated as a litmus test to our, to our authenticity. And that is very harmful to Native people. It's, um, you know, and of course these are, if they don't speak their language or it's not their own fault, right? It's, a, it's, it's you know, systemic, you know, uh, colonial policies hundreds of years of policies that brought that about and um and so uh so what i really fight for is not only the the elimination of uh the eradication of these negative uh stereotypes but also the need to have to perform our identity to other people's you know uh, desires and um i just i just want i want native people just to be able to be themselves so yeah i i, I just want us to be free of all of that and for people to be free to be themselves and to focus on things that are meaningful to them. And I want the culture, the language, everything to flow um, of its own accord, right? Not to have to be something forced um, or performative. Um, so that's, that's what I'm fighting for for my kids. Jacqueline fights for a world where Native kids like hers feel secure in their culture and their identities. A world where they don't feel like they need to perform their nativeness in order to feel whole. And a world where they don't have to watch non-native people perform it either. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangodi.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangodi.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unboss Creative. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd. March is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate us. As women, we put our heart and soul into everything we do. Release the Pressure is here to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. I'm inviting you to help us get 100,000 Black women to learn more about their heart health. Go to www.releasethepressure.org and take the pledge to prioritize your heart health. That's www.releasethepressure.org. You are valuable. Learn more about your heart health today. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. 
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.